This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Okay, is this good enough place for it? Sure, yeah. Okay. We're a little behind schedule, but if we are quiet, we'll be able to start. Great. Uh, I don't remember what the next lectures are. Do you know, I'm next week. You're next week. On? Uh, Paul and uh, the silencing of women. So First Timothy, First Timothy 2, and First Timothy and... Great. Paul and the silences, silencing of women. Bring your flak jackets. And, uh, <laughs> or feather pillows. <laughs> great. We look. We really look forward to that. That's great. Uh, act of courage and uh, good to do. So this evening we're talking. Of, this is more straight biblical theological than a lot of the lectures I've done in the last few years. This is Jesus, the stone the builders rejected. It's an image that has been very sort of problematic to me, and you'll see why, to understand it properly and what its its implications are for us. We'll see as we go along. I'll start with an experience that I'm sure is familiar to all of us, which is tripping and falling down over something we didn't see very clearly. Uh, maybe over some furniture, maybe over a child's toy, a dog or a cat, or maybe even a child. Most people fall for children. Um, or outside a curbside, or a step we didn't notice, or a step that we did see but turned out to not be there, <laughs> which is, I can do that quite well. Uh, I've worked a lot in the woods and uh, cutting firewood and so on and falling down because I don't see the ground very well with all sorts of growing things falling down over logs or, or rocks. I'm old enough now so that the medical forms I get to fill out usually when I go to the doctor will include, have you fallen recently? Explain. And uh, I've, for years, have just not bothered to fill that out because it gets too involved and complicated. It gives them too many wrong ideas. Um, Children fall down, and if they don't hit something hard or sharp, they bounce back up as if they were made of rubber. Uh, When you get older, the bouncing back up isn't as easy or as quick to do. Uh, But uh, we can be seriously hurt at any age by falling down. Um, so it's not something we can just always joke about, even though it can be funny to do, and to, especially 
watching somebody else. Uh, but in biblical times, they knew this very well. Uh, much better than we do, I think, because they didn't have cars, trains, airplanes, bicycles, motorcycles, elevators, escalators to get places that they wanted to get. And so they walked and walked and climbed and walked some more and climbed down. Thousands of miles, Paul walked on his travels. When he wasn't on shipboard, he was walking. And not on nice paths, paved paved roads, uh, but, but uh, in very rough going. So they knew well about tripping, and tripping and falling is found quite often in the Bible, as is slipping and sliding. And that's, that's an image that comes up quite often in the scripture. Um, it's the, the Bible is filled with with uh, the occurrence of these of these events, sometimes carrying a certain amount of theological uh, um, understanding. The first thing that went wrong in the whole biblical story starts really is is looked to as with a falling down metaphor. We call it the fall, um, and then you have all the way through, especially in the prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, stumbling stones and stumbling blocks, and and just stumbling. And it becomes a big theme in the New Testament. And that's where I'm wanting to uh, to pay some attention to it. Um, <clears throat> one of Jesus' most sharp-edged parables, especially sharp-edged to the people listening to him, because as we see from the very end of this section, uh, the the chief priests and the scribes who were listening to him when he gave this parable. I'll just read it to you. It's the parable of the vineyard in Luke 20, verse 9. I won't put it up here because it's not necessary that we have the whole thing. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it out to tenants, went to another country for a long time. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him the share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Next, he sent another slave. Then also they, 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 also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third. This one they also wounded and threw out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Heaven forbid. But he looked at them and said, What then does does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will, it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the scribes and the priests realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him, but at that very hour, they feared the people. Okay, that gives you the the parable of the vineyard, and then the this little addendum that Jesus adds, tells the parable and looks intently at them, and ask them, how do you read this? How do you read this uh, text? 
know, just leave that up for you. The last two verses of what of what Jesus says. <clears throat> now, one of the, um, the the parable of the vineyard we would all know who've read it before or who've seen it at all. Uh, it's a parable for the sake of the people who are listening predicting what they are going to do later that week, but they don't yet know it. So he's really skating in in very tricky ground here, um, and they certainly don't want to hear it. Um, So it's a story about what is going to be real-life actions in the world uh, right in Jerusalem later that week. Of course, the clear preview is of Jesus God's son being rejected, crucified right there that week by the imposter leaders of the vineyard, of the national vineyard. But after telling this parable, he looked at them and said this. What does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone who fo- on whom it falls. Uh, these last two verses, Jesus shifts the metaphor of the vineyard to the metaphor of an active building site with lots of building materials floating around, workers perhaps at work, trash to be thrown away, kept here and there. You, we've all seen building sites, the amount of trash and new materials and so on that's always stacked here and there all over the place. Uh, and the general contractor, I'm filling in a little bit here, the general contractor um, was careless or hadn't checked with the architect's plans, and he threw away a stone that had been specially cut for an important place in the building that was being built. Cornerstone or capstone, people translate it in different ways, depending on their architectural prejudices. Uh, uh, he didn't like it, so he threw it out. Maybe he left it a in the middle of a pile of other loose stones that he wasn't going to use. Later on, the architect shows up and he says, where is it? Where is my cornerstone? And he, we don't know if he fires the contractor or not, but he makes sure it gets back back and gets put into the building in its proper honored place in the building where it belonged. Okay, what is this building site metaphor all about? And where does that take us? And what does it have to do with the vineyard? Uh, we can see the connection if we jump ahead. It's a little bit wonderful in the Bible if you have the Bible itself giving you an interpretation of what you didn't quite understand a little bit earlier in the Bible. Um, otherwise, we don't have to depend so much on our own uh, scholarship in figuring things out. Uh, but we jump ahead just a few weeks, uh, which means after the cataclysmic events of the crucifixion of Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, and the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. One afternoon, at about three o'clock at the the time of the afternoon prayer in the temple, Peter and John went up to the temple to pray, and on the way in they saw a crippled beggar who had been there and who was always there, everybody knew him, Um, and in the name of Jesus... They healed him. He expected the money. Uh, and he says, silver and gold have I none. And he healed him. He stood up and he jumped and leaped and, uh, and praised God. 
great, great picture, very visible, visual picture we're given there. And Peter said, uh, explain to everybody what, what had just happened. He said, it is, this has been done by the power of Jesus of Nazareth, who you, the leadership, who was present who could hear, who was, we're not sure who was there at the start of it, um, has just crucified and God has raised him from the dead. It started a massive controversy uh, that you can see right there in the book of Acts, um, which landed both Peter and John in jail that night. Uh, but the next day, the high priest and his family and the temple officials brought them out uh, to interrogate them. And, and uh, they, um, they, they demanded... What power and under what name are you doing these things? And you have here Peter's uh, response. I, wait a minute, I've got the wrong. Thank you. We were in Acts 4. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now, intriguing, just uh, passing by uh, remark, he, he calls him the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. As you, most of you know, Christ was not his last name. It wasn't Mary Christ, Joseph Christ. Uh, Christ is the role of the Messiah, the Anointed One, and here is Peter right after the right after the resurrection, saying, "Jesus Christ." In other words, he's identifying him as the Messiah that they've been praying for for over a thousand years. So he's saying he's the Messiah right here that you crucified. So he's off and running for for not a, a smooth go in his in his uh, interaction with the leadership. But. The vineyard parable and the building site parable, or rather building site metaphor, are, are tell overlapping stories. Jesus the Son is the stone that was rejected. But the building site metaphor has three parts. The first part is the rejection of the cornerstone, referring to the rejection and killing of Jesus, the Son of God, who is God as the true, true owner of the vineyard. So, and this first part of the metaphor, it overlaps completely with the vineyard parable. This was uh, Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday. The, 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 uh, the cornerstone was rejected. But the placing of the capstone to its intended place of honor, to where it belonged, did not happen on Good Friday. That is what happened on Easter Sunday morning. This is the second part of the metaphor, because in this this metaphor is packed with also the resurrection uh, on Easter Sunday morning. The second part 
the story goes beyond what is told in the vineyard parable. Uh, the one you crucified was raised by the power of God. As Peter says in a wonderful way later in the book of Acts, death could not hold him. Death could not hold him. You, could, you crucified him, but death could not hold him. This great power that defeats us all could not hold him. And then salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so here is Peter saying he's the Messiah. He's You tried to kill him. Death couldn't hold him. He's God raised him from the dead. And he is the center of salvation for everybody now. from now on. He's the source of salvation. In his name alone, there will be salvation. Peter didn't go on then to explain the third and last part of Jesus' metaphor about the stone. Remember back in Luke 20, Jesus had asked them the meaning of the stone which the builders rejected to become the cornerstone, but went on to say, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. That's the third part of the metaphor, which Peter um, doesn't touch at that point. So Jesus is the stone. He's the only name by which we must be saved, uh, the foundation or base of salvation itself. He's rejected, <clears throat> been ra- but been raised by God. He was also the stone that will break and crush the one who falls on it or under it. What is this about? What is he talking about here? Uh, what is, how does this refer? What is it? How can Jesus be the cornerstone, the rock of salvation? And also the stone of stumbling, which can destroy you. That this is the, this has what bothered me for a long time, and maybe want to want to investigate it a bit. Uh, <clears throat> to add to this, I want to jump ahead again. This time, longer distance, about twenty years ahead. Uh, that means it's after the growth of the church, substantial growth of the church, uh, about the middle of the first century. It's after the conversion of Paul. And Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, and he writes his letter to the Romans, say in the 50s, sometime. We don't know exactly when this was written. By that time, there had been a strange irony, which is what he picks up in the middle of the book of Romans, which is that, uh, as historians tell us now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but by 50 AD, there were more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians in the world already. This is only 20 years after the, uh, after the day of Pentecost. Um, an irony. Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, for the Jews, but with uh, with the one to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, which is that it, that's, that's the world, that's the nations, the world. And sure enough, this has already started. Um, part part of this is a result of Paul's efforts himself and others uh, as well. Uh, and, and the, the, the flourishing of the, of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of the gospel to the Gentiles. It was also the result of the way the Jewish people um, persecuted the church severely. They tried to shut down the church. They killed various church leaders. They made most of them, uh, forced them to leave Jerusalem to save their lives, which ironically, again, made them go other places and spread the gospel. They didn't shut up. They just left and went to other places and spread it all over the place. And Paul was the leader of this, um, spreading to the Gentiles. And somehow, the Greco-Roman world was more open, uh, comparatively at least, 
to the gospel than the Jewish people. Paul, after his conversion, rejoiced in the many Gentile conversions, but he grieved that his own people, whom he loved, uh, were so resistant, were so dug in against uh, Jesus and against Jesus' followers. Uh, and, of course, he had been a part of that himself. He knew all about that. He had led that or resistance himself. And it seemed a great irony to them all that Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, that the Jewish people, having been praying for him for over a thousand years, was rejected by the Jewish people when he finally showed up. You sense that in, uh, in Luke 4 when he comes and he speaks in his own hometown in Nazareth. Uh, and he says, he gives a, a, a statement out of Isaiah, which is, the, which is a statement to, to be said by the Messiah, about the Messiah. And he says, today this has been done right now in your presence. And people don't even begin to connect with it until he starts in, insulting their visions of, 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 their, of, of, of Jewish tribalism. But this is a deep struggle for Paul. He doesn't understand why this is. And he raises it. In in uh, in Romans, uh, the end of chapter nine and and, and ten. I'll give you this p- passage in a minute. Um, but why the Greeks, the Romans, the pagans seem to be open and the Jews closed? Um, in this part of the letter, he gives his clearest description of the New Testament in the New Testament of how Jesus can be the rock of salvation and also the stumbling stone to destruction. Uh, it turns out that Jesus isn't two different kinds of stones, or there aren't two stones. He is one stone, the rock of salvation, to whom people respond in radically different ways. So the difference between these two images comes from the different ways different people respond uh, to him. People who divide themselves into two different categories by their response. Um, Paul, in this, he compares the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, there, this is Romans 9, uh, 30. I'll read you this passage. This is kind of dense. Reading Paul is almost always dense, but uh, I'll call your attention to certain parts of this uh, after we read it. <clears throat> what then are we to say? He's raised the question I've just, just uh, 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 spoken to you about. Gentiles who do not strive for righteousness, have attained it, that is, righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for righteousness, that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He goes over into the 10th chapter. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about the Jewish people here. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Now, let's start with the Gentiles who got it right. <clears throat> uh, he says the Gentiles have obtained a righteousness that is by faith. 
the gospel message was that salvation was a gift of God's forgiveness for their sin and adoption into God's family, ultimately an eternal life, uh, starting now. All a free gift, and it all had to do with Jesus and what Jesus had done and what Jesus has done for them. Their sin was forgiven because Jesus had suffered for it in his death on the cross. Uh, so they were free from the punishment that they had deserved. Jesus took that punishment on his back in their place on the cross. Uh, I love the statement that Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, again, to another Gentile church. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code, code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So it was a legal code against us, which he took away, nailing it to the cross. Just as, as Pilate nailed the sign on the cross, uh, the king of the Jews, uh, to give it an indication of why this man was crucified. The real reason he was crucified is uh, the code uh, that stood against us and, and, uh, and, and was canceled by what he did on the cross. The legal charge is canceled. As we trust in him, he not only forgives our sin so that we are morally clean in God's sight, but he credits, Jesus credits his own righteousness, his own righteousness, life to us, credited to our moral account with God. So it's not just that our sins are paid for and leaves us morally neutral. His righteousness is attributed to us. His perfect life is attributed to us. The theologians of the Reformation call this the great exchange, which meant that as we, just what I've said, as we trust in Jesus for our salvation, he takes our sin on his back, but it gives us credit for his moral perfection so that we are justified. Justification is the result of these two, can be said about us because these two things are held together. Where sin is paid for and righteousness of Christ, of his perfect life, is attributed to us. Great exchange was certainly not a bargain for Jesus, except that he did it because he loved us. And so he did it, he actually says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him. Hard to imagine uh, what joy we would provide for him, but that's what it says. The joy of reconnecting with us, the joy of us being uh, reconciled with, uh, uh, with him and with the Father. Let's be clear, this is a massive cosmic-sized rescue operation. And I think we, for our own good, I think this is much too familiar to us. Much more familiar than than is right for us or that is good for us in our understanding of it. Our salvation required God to become a human being out of his extraordinary love to join this human race. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. Uh, to live a perfect life here on earth to submit to, being, submit to being tortured to death, bearing judgment for our sins, to rise again for our justification. This was not because God wanted to give a dramatic and colorful narrative, that's the, the story power of this, which is vast, which is extraordinary. Just look at what the story has meant in the history of literature and anybody telling stories ever since. This vast narrative power. That's not why God has done it, to give us something with, with narrative power. It's because we needed it. It's because he loved us. And this is what we needed to be saved, to be forgiven, to be brought back 
into fellowship with him. Nothing less could have saved us. And this is not paying us a compliment. Jesus in Gethsemane says, hey, listen, if there's any other way to save these bent-out-of-shape people whom we love, let's have it. And there wasn't. There wasn't another alternative. There wasn't anything that God said. He he was met with silence. Um, For many of us, as I I said, this story is too familiar for our own good. Compare it to other religions, which uh, I can't possibly go survey other religions, but so often other religions... um, uh, it's so dramatically different because we're told of what we can do in another religion. We can learn this. We can try this. We can become this. We can we can not do that. Uh, and, and all sorts of things we can do. We can learn. Prophet will tell us this and t- tell us the other thing. And pr- we can practice this. This is, uh, the main thing about Christianity is what God has done. Is that God has done something. And we simply are led to respond to what God has done. I don't see God responding in anything like a similar way in any other religious tradition. Because uh, this is because the diagnosis of our problem is different in the Bible from the diagnosis of other problems that other religious traditions and philosophical traditions uh, would, would talk about. Um, Paul's point was the difference, the way Israel and the Gentiles approached righteousness. For the Gentiles, it was by faith in contrast to Israel. Um, 932 uh, who pursued it not by faith but as if it was by works in verse 32 of chapter 9 here so they stumbled over the stumbling stone this seems a crucial difference this seems to be the thing that makes the stumbling stone the stumbling stone Uh, what, what makes Jesus and what he did nonetheless a stumbling stone to people who still want their own righteousness to be the thing that they trust in Gentiles were able to receive this amazing gift as a gift, free, or these Gentiles that Paul's talking about here, free by grace through faith, trusting God for it, realizing that they could not save themselves or contribute to salvation, but because of their own righteousness, but because their own righteousness was exactly what they did not have. If acceptance with God comes by grace, it has to be a free gift, because that is what grace means. Paul says in Romans 11, verse 6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul is just hammering the logic of this here, the absolute logic inseparability of, 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 of grace and faith. He insists on the logical connection between grace and faith. You can't have one without the other. Faith is the only way to receive anything that's offered you by grace. It's a gift that must be received as a gift. It can't be paid for, can't be earned, can't be deserved, can't be merited. If you work for a wage, you work your time, and then you hold out your hand to your boss, and you hopefully get a check for uh, the time that you uh, that you worked. He owes you your wages uh, for the for your work done. You have a right to your wages for your work done. It is your due. It can't be this way with God. But he owes us nothing. It's all the other way around. We have reneged on all the promises that we've that, that human beings embody to God. We've we've the, uh, he uh, we've betrayed him. We've broken his covenant. 
Salvation is offered to us by God's grace, so if it's received, it must be received by faith, which means a simple trust, which means we, we talk about empty hands, which means we're not offering him something to get something back, quid pro quo, uh, where hey, we have empty hands and we get something in those, into the, put into those empty hands. So it's not, we don't come to God with hands full of things that we offer him because he needs them or because he wants them or because he has pay, needs payment for them. Uh, if we try to do that, if we demand to pay for something, to earn it, to merit it, for, when it comes to salvation, we are not accepting it. We are not receiving it. We are refusing it as offered. Uh, as Paul wrote here again of the Jewish people in, in, uh, in uh, verse, verse 3 of, uh, of, of chapter 10, uh, we are... Uh, the Jewish people didn't, had not submitted to God, God's righteousness. God's righteousness was there for them, but they did not submit to that. So we are stumbling on the stumbling stone. Or they, they were stumbling on the stumbling stone. Isaiah wrote, back in Isaiah 55, uh, that salvation is without money and without price. Uh, I love that, because it means that it's free. It comes to us as an absolutely free gift. But it's a gift that is of priceless value. So we couldn't possibly pay for it. Someone else did pay for it, paid an astronomical amount for it. But then it's offered to you by grace, which means free. So it's only with humility that we can receive Jesus' gift as a gift. That is what faith means, to try to pay for it as an insult to God and a rejection of his gift. So the Gentiles understood all the way of saying I'm hammering on this again and again. The Gentile, the Gentiles understood that a salvation was by faith in Christ. Israel, though, got it wrong. Jesus as a stumbling stone. Uh, Israel wanted to trust in their ability to please God. This is Israel as a nation, not every Jewish person. Plenty of Jewish people were Christians by this time, but Israel as a nation. Um, or, or the, the main body of the population. Uh, they believe in their ability to, to please God by keeping the law because they could earn it by their works, by trying to establish their own righteousness. Uh, this can make sense, and I think we see it all around us today. Uh, it can make sense if you don't think your sin is all that serious. You can always correct mistakes. You can always try harder. You can always turn over a new leaf or several new leaves uh, and you think you'll be okay because surely God must grade on a curve and so you'll be all right. We can, our, our, our righteousness is, is, uh, is, is fine to offer with God. And if that's what you think, then someone like Jesus or Paul comes along and tells you, no, you're in much deeper trouble than you think you are. You need God himself to atone for your sin, to provide an atonement for your sin, to, 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 to join the human race and die for you, to free you from your own liability to sin. Uh, it's that serious. You can't climb out of it yourself. Yeah, your, in other words, your righteousness before God is exactly what you don't have, but yet what God has for you. Uh, his righteousness that he's willing to give for, uh, to you. Uh, you might well feel insulted, as many Jewish people did, um, 
and likely to resist that teaching, even accuse uh, Paul or Jesus as as he was as they were accused of blasphemy. They would say, "We don't need that much. We don't need such a thing as saying we don't need such a uh, a bizarre radical rescue operation. We have resources ourselves to obey God. We have the law of Moses. We've been believing and following the law of Moses." all this time, and we can obey that. So Paul writes in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, uh, that Israel is zealous for God, but their zeal was not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul knew all about this from the days before his conversion, when he had hated the gospel for just this reason and other reasons as well. We'll come back to Paul's life in a few minutes. These same responses to the gospel of Christ are around us today. I remember after I first became a Christian in Europe, coming back to this country and connecting as a Christian for the first time I had with a lot of people that I'd known before, some of my parents, friends in particular, trying to explain to them the gospel that I'd come to believe uh, was true. Uh, that we can't come to God thinking we're good enough on our own by cleaning ourselves up and behaving ourselves properly, being good, respectable New England uh, moral people. Uh, that That's not enough. That's not... God expects something far more from us than that. Uh, and and um, that, we, that, that our good works will not uh, satisfy. We need to come to him asking for mercy, trusting in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. I can remember several of them said things in in, in this direction, only much more long conversations. I'm never going to believe in a God who sees me as some charity case. Okay? Let's get this straight right away. You're not going to ever get me to believe in a God who sees me as a charity case. Okay? Uh, uh, Don't try. Don't give, just give up on that. I've lived an honest, respectable life much more honest and respectable than all the, most of the people I see around me. And we look around us and see not many people as, as respectable and honest and upright as I am. Uh, and so uh, God will judge me well on that, and I don't need any rescue. So that's, that's totally good New England, solid New England theology. Uh, uh, deist, maybe, theology. Uh, it's been there for over 100 years more than that um, I don't need any rescue they were offended that I could think that God would not just reward them for their good deeds well done so they were angry at me too not just uh, at, at the gospel I was talking about being considered a charity case was deeply offensive this was, this was falling over the stone of stumbling that's what that is that's doing it that's what, that's what someone is doing as, uh, as you hear them say that, uh, wanting to stand on their own righteousness. Uh, I think sometimes, for some people, it's the very goodness of the good news, that is, it's free by grace, that causes so many people to hate it and reject it. They could be much more comfortable with something that I have to earn, because I know where I stand and I'll do that. So how can Jesus be the capstone, the rock of salvation, and the stone of stumbling at the same time, which can destroy you? It depends totally on what is your response to him. What is your response to the salvation that he comes to 
to, to, to put in our, in our lap. Um, no, one, um, it, it, no one boasts in the presence of God. Humility is basic. Humility is to see ourselves, God, and other people as they truly are. Uh, it isn't some sort of complicated psychological maneuver. It's just to see ourselves as we are, God as he is, other people as they are. Uh, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That We see that I don't know how many times in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It's sort of the most basic spiritual law, I think, uh, in the Bible. Even my best efforts and achievements do not make me worthy to walk into the presence of God, nor do your best works and entitlements uh, uh, make you worthy to walk into the presence of God. I need Jesus to forgive me and then open the door for me. What do we see in Jesus' teaching? I want to just not stay with the... start looking at this as an abstraction. Uh, He contrasts these different these two different responses to God to himself I'll look at two, a number of examples of Jesus contrasting two different people um, I'll take the, the uh, here I think we're not there we are um, I need a bit more muscle on that um, parable in, in Luke 18. Um, yeah, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Here you have the capstone and the stone of stumbling side by side in the temple together, one looking filled with himself, uh, and falling radically short. Uh, but humbled and repentant, the tax collector, who would have done terrible things, but has come in repentance here, uh, goes home justified, while the Pharisee does not. The parable of the prodigal son is something known by all of us. Uh, the son and his, older, and, and his older brother. We have the same contrast within the same parable. Jesus is playing these two things against each other. He wants us to understand there's a real difference in how we respond to his great work of salvation in this world. The younger son, though he'd done terrible things wrong, came to himself and repented, went home to his father and asked forgiveness, and was received with grace and joy and given a party. But the older brother was angry that he'd been cheated. He'd not gotten what he felt he deserved for all his hard work done, that he stayed out behind the barn, spitting tax and complaining and missing the party, uh, falling on the stumbling stone with his own pride and his own resentment. Um, I have to, whenever I mention that, I have to say, though, that it ends with the father repeating the offer, come back to the party, the door is open. And Jesus doesn't tell us what he decides to do. He leaves that open. So I think it's a, 
he's, he's talking to the people to whom he's telling those three the series of three parables, and he's, he's leaving the door open. Uh, because we, if, we, if we're in the, in the shoes of the older brother, need to know that the door is, is open to us. You can see the same contrast in the two criminals who died with Jesus uh, at his crucifixion. One of them insulted Jesus and demanded that he save himself uh, and them. The other criminal, and he was probably a murderer, people suggest that they, but this was capital, a capital offense that they were suffering for, um, said, uh, rebuked the first criminal, and just said, shut up. We're getting what we, our deeds deserve. Just be quiet. You don't know what you're, talk, what you're talking about. This man has done nothing wrong. Uh, and then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And it was to him that Jesus said these amazing words that have just shaken me every time I've ever read them since the first time I read the New Testament. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Before the rest of you get home for supper, this guy would be with Jesus in paradise. This guy has been a murderer, probably. Who knows what he's done? With no great life of Christian service to give, for crying out loud, he had nothing to contribute in the way of positive, uh, moral, whatever. Uh, but there he is. Today you'll be with me in paradise. These comparisons between two people coming to the stone in opposite ways, the cornerstone and the t- stone of stumbling. And there's all sorts of ones. Uh, example, I'll just give you one here <clears throat> of people getting it wrong all alone. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who comes to me, uh, not everyone who says, says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. And this is, I think, a huge group of people who the whole theology is we're going to bring our resumes to God. This guy's brought his resume to God. Look at all the stuff I've done for you. Look at all the work I've done. Uh, Look at all the things that you've seen from honor, answers to prayer, whatever. Uh, And and, uh, I've done them. Assume that 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 a good spiritual resume is a ticket itself, a ticket to God's uh, into God's presence, into God's into God's house. They fall over the stumbling stone. They don't know God, and nor does He know them. Je- Jesus shows this contrast throughout His ministry. He leaves us with the question: Do you come with empty hands to receive mercy, grace through what I have done? Then you have come to the cornerstone, your Savior. Or do you come with your own righteousness, which makes Jesus seem unnecessary, and God seem your debtor? Then you have pushed away your Savior and fallen over the stumbling stone. One more example is the lawyer to whom Jesus told uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. He comes and he asks, What must I do to be saved? Jesus reminded him of the law, and the lawyer claimed that he knew it. It was to love God and to love neighbor. But Luke writes, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, right away, to justify himself, this is what he's after. This is why he's there to see Jesus. So he's starting on the wrong foot. He's starting as as a stumbling over the stumbling block of his own righteousness and his own desire to justify himself. Uh, But Jesus didn't 
reject him or mock him or just walk away, even though he'd uh, showed these misunderstood salvation. But he tried to get through to him. Uh, he tells him the story of the Good Samaritan, ending with, who was the neighbor? The lawyer's answer was correct, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus gave him homework, a very short homework assignment. He just says, go and do likewise. End of conversation, end of interaction. What is that about? Uh, people try and make the gospel out of it. It's not the gospel. Go and do likewise. To me, that is a, this is a time bomb that's going to go off. Uh, if he does that, if he tries to go and do likewise, think of what it, if you thought your your life depended, your salvation depended on you living out a life just like that good Samaritan, of radical love and radical care. Uh, I don't want to go into the whole uh, parable now, but you can read it, reread it again yourself. And if that, if my life, if my salvation depended on me doing that, period, for the rest of my life, forget it. Forget it. My selfishness is way, way too much to do that and to have that be the ground for my salvation. So I think he he tells him this, gives him this homework. Go and do likewise to shake him up, to to doubt and to give up his confidence in his own righteousness, that he might start to search for the only real salvation, which is by grace, not by self-justification. So I think Jesus is challenging him to think about this, do this, try doing this, just do this for a month and see how you see where you where you end up. And then I think he'd be a very different person to talk to. Uh, but Jesus has the confidence of just giving them this and say, go ahead and work on this. Uh, Jesus is inviting him to see himself truly, to, that he might repent and realize that he needs grace and mercy. In other words, and this is so important, you can have it all wrong and be filled so much with your own pride uh, that you that you are on the stumbling block, that you do you you, you put hope in what you can do uh, on your own, but you can repent and change. You can see through that. You can say I was wrong. You can turn away from that self confidence in your own moral stature and embrace the righteousness of God in Christ. Falling on the stumbling stone does not need to be a permanent fall. Is what this is what I'm trying to say here. And, and I, I'll end as a, my examples here with the example of the Apostle Paul, who's the primary example of the, his stumbling stone was not going to be his final, uh, his final place. Uh, he's especially interesting in this because he starts out perhaps, you can almost say, fanatically hostile to Jesus and to, Je- and to Jesus' people. And we, I won't go into it, but, but he killing Christians, persecuting the church, imprisoning Christians, traveling all over the place, uh, to imprison Christians. But he, as we know the story, he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road on his way to kill Christians, or at least imprison Christians. He meets Jesus and everything changes. Everything changes. In Philippians chapter 3, he describes the way, describes the way he valued his Jewish pedigree, what he hoped for. How he based his confidence, all the things that he rested his confidence in. He was, uh, you know, he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was spoke a Hebrew language. He wrote, studied under this person. That his whole his his uh, uh, birth pedigree, his education, his zeal in carrying out uh, his, his duties. He, he he wrote that he even wrote he ended that. But he, 
before, before he was a Christian, in his own mind, he had kept the law. He was abs to the law, blameless. Imagine saying that, again, what that would have been for him as a Pharisee. The Pharisees at this point had, on the Sabbath alone, there's two commandments in the Bible about the Sabbath. Have, do no work on the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath holy. Do no work on the Sabbath. They had over a thousand rules of how to keep the Sabbath. And you had to do them all. Uh, and all fine, talk about fine tuning, what kind of a knot you can tie on the Sabbath, and yeah, and, and, and what kind of a knot you couldn't tie, what you could tie a knot in to help women whose clothes were tied on with knots. You could tie all sorts of knots on an article of women's clothing, uh, that you couldn't tie in any other place. But if your well was too low and, and, and the water was too low and you had to, you couldn't reach down with your bucket and you needed to tie something onto the bucket, you could use a couple of women's corsets because it was an article of women's clothing to get down to the water and bring it up. And that was, these sorts of, this is what the scribes did. This was their job to figure out how do we obey the law in this way. So Paul, and this was just, another whole thing where I can't get it, but this is where Jesus ran so much time healing on the Sabbath. You could, you could put a bandage on someone's wound to stop it from bleeding and getting worse. You couldn't put ointment on the bandage because that would be to make it get better. And that was work. So you couldn't put ointment on a bandage. You could put, stop bleeding with a, with a bandage, but not do anything, which just, just to stop from getting worse, but that, you couldn't do anything to make it get better. So you, you see where Jesus, and he was purposely, obviously, colliding head on with this to show I'm bringing you something very, very different. Uh, but here's Paul saying, I did it all. It's not just, uh, I've tried to do it, uh, but I did it all. So I was, as to the law, blameless. Hundreds of legalistic rules. He'd kept them all and was still satisfied uh, that he was in good, under good standing before God. But he had, had fallen on the stumbling stone, and he knew it by the time he wrote Philippians, because he had come to Christ. Uh, he met Jesus and immediately had a totally different picture of himself, as in instantly, uh, as Jesus calls him from, from heaven. He, he began to see a different picture of the depth of his own sin, how wrong he had been, how far he really was from God, how much he needed God's grace through Christ. What he had thought of as his own righteousness, he suddenly saw as hollow, selfish, and self-deceived. I'll just read you a piece of um, Philippians 3 here. Whatever gains I had, this is the end of this passage where he enlists all his pedigrees and things. Um, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Here he's laying out the very thing we've been talking about uh, and, uh, fully. He was so relieved to get up from having fallen over the stumbling stone or from being perhaps crushed under the weight of the stumbling stone and come to see Jesus as a real cornerstone uh, of salvation. The word translated rubbish here may be a little bit too respectable, a translation of what Paul is saying really a very negative word, probably meaning something more like sewage or manure. Uh, it means he had a very negative attitude of what he had before valued. What had 
the very, were the very things that made him so respected and respectable. Why so negative about all his law-keeping and achievements? It includes all his achievements in keeping the law and so forth. Because they had given him the illusion that he was right with God as he stood. His moral success had given him a sense of satisfaction. I'm okay with God. I've, I've kept the law of Moses. I don't need to uh, and it had blinded him uh, from seeing his need for mercy and grace. So his own moral self-confidence had been delusional and at the same time extremely dangerous to him. So he was, he was glad to get rid of it. So finally here, to stumble uh, or to stand. And I contrast these two things. We can stumble over the stone of stumbling, or we can stand on the grace of God. Uh, we come to the rock, the stone, who is Jesus himself. We do not, not need to trip and fall over him by refusing the amazing gift uh, of Christ crucified for us. Uh, instead, we are called to step up on that stone rather than falling over it, to step up on it and stand on it, stand on the rock of God's grace through faith in Christ. As Jesus said, build your house there on that rock and let the waters rise as he ended the Sermon on the Mount. And you shall not be moved to, to take your stand there on these promises and on the radical grace of God. We spoke of faith. Trust in God is coming with empty hands to receive his forgiveness, to be accepted as the prodigal was accepted coming home and celebrated. Uh, with that, there's no fear that we might not be quite good enough that we haven't achieved quite enough, that we haven't worked quite hard enough, we haven't been sincere enough, because on the day we became a Christian, we were already accepted and forgiven and justified. Uh, that's settled. So the Christian serves God without being afraid that he or she will not have done quite enough. So we're made, motivated not by fear, but by thankfulness for what we've already received, thankfulness for what Jesus has done. And also anticipation of what there is for us as we serve him. The whole focus of what we've been saying so far has been about the foundation of our relationship to God. What our relationship to God rests on. I've talked nothing really about the Christian life beyond that so far. Um, we've been talking about what our relationship to God rests on or doesn't rest on. Or is destroyed by. What I'm not talking about is standing on that rock of God's grace through Jesus. What is the path, the purpose, the trajectory of our lives as we stand on grace? What do we do? This is a vast theme in Old Testament and New Testament, uh, which I've not even spoken on at all until now, and I can, I can only touch it, but I totally have to say it here because it's, it's necessary. The shape of the Christian life lived on the rock or from the rock. I'll give you one more here. Paul's letter, he, you could take all kinds of places in the writing of Jesus or in, in Paul, in writing of Paul or the teaching of Jesus. Um, this is one of the places where he collapses with what I've been trying to say and, and adds what I want to add here. Uh, 
as much as anywhere. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 10. What an amazing compression this is of so much. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Now, in verse 8 and 9, he lays out the theme that I've been hammering on, so you're probably sick of it already uh, tonight, uh, that we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, and in case you haven't been paying attention, that's not of your own doing uh, or the result of your own works uh, and so that no one can boast in the presence of God. This is because in the presence of God, no one is boasting. Um, if you're boasting, you're not in the presence of God. Uh, Paul is eliminating our works, our achievements, our efforts, our righteousness from being the ground or base or foundation of what saves us. Okay, verses 8 and 9 there. Um, Sorry, I haven't numbered the verses, but the first two verses here. Uh, But then look at the last sentence. Um, "For For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. From the place of standing on the rock of salvation by God, he says, God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what we are for. That's his purpose for us. This isn't some little add-on. This is what he wants us to do. He's even prepared good works for us beforehand. Good works are to be our way of life. See, this is so absolutely central to what he's doing in our lives after we accept the gospel of Christ. This is his purpose for us. This is good works not done in order to gain salvation, but as an expression of the salvation that's already received by us as adopted children of God. So salvation is not a get-out-of-jail-free, after which we can go back to living the life we lived as a non-Christian beforehand, um, just a pass morally that we won't be brought into judgment not at all. It's serving God is the way of living uh, that, that someone who's saved lives, is, is uh, service, serving and obeying God. Of course, our service will be, Im- will be imperfect, but we are forgiven, and we know that. We are adopted, and we're not unadopted when we sin or turn again against God or away from God or fail God. Um, we're welcomed into God's family and, and allowed to grow to be more like Jesus as our older brother. That's why there's an enormous amount of biblical teaching uh, having to do with good works, and, which are to be, to be our way of life. A huge amount of the teaching of Old Testament and New Testament is just in that, okay, what is, how do we fulfill that, which is our purpose? I'm not trying to balance the picture as if I've talked all about uh, God's grace and I have to say something to balance it with human efforts so we have a balance of what God does and what we do. No. Uh, it's not that way at all. They're two very different things. One is what is the base of our salvation, and then and, uh, the other is what we do with salvation. Both sides of this passage of Ephesians 2 are part of the same cloth. They're not one balancing another. Uh, the foundation of salvation and the way salvation is lived out. In the passage that we read from Ephesians 3, uh, just after that, 
Paul referred to his own law-keeping and accomplishments as and just after he's referred to his, uh, his uh, law-keeping and accomplishments as rubbish. Uh, and then he does not say, when he, when he says, that I rest on Christ and his righteousness, he does not say, so I put my feet up and relaxed. Uh, he says, actually, as much as you possibly could, something totally opposite. He knew he was saved by grace. He said, I have, now I have a goal. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ. This is as unpassive as any language you can come across. I press on. I'm straining forward. When I read this first, I thought immediately of a childhood. I used to go to loggers conventions in Vermont. I love to used to watch all the stuff going on. One of the things happening there is the would be a horse pull. These massive workhorses whose chests are about this wide, pull blocks of concrete the size of those two tables together. And they're given the command, the minute they're given the command to pull, they go down on their knees. Their knees are on the ground and churning like this. This immense strength straining forward. That's what I thought of when I read this, read this from Paul. Straining forward uh, toward a goal, toward something that they want to do. And the horses love it. Horses are excited to do it. They're jittering all over the place before they get to charge. They get an early start because they're, they screw everything up by starting too soon before they're, before they're connected to the, chip, to the block of concrete sometimes. But, but, but uh, so they gallop off back we go. But, 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 so it's not as if they're tortured into doing this, but, but straining forward. This, this is the language Paul is using, straining forward, pressing on. Uh, this is what he, as he understands it's, his salvation is totally accomplished by God. He's now to live it out. And, and he's straining forward to do that. Okay. Just concluding here. I started speaking about falling down and the need to look where we go, uh, where we're going, because we don't always see clearly at all where we're putting our feet, where we're putting our weight. I've tried in this lecture to shine some weight on the, on the bigger picture uh, of where there's also a danger of not seeing where we're putting our weight. <laughs> Uh, and clear, clearly a danger of falling down. There, too, we need to watch where we're putting our trust and where that trust leads. I came across an intriguing quote from John Bailey, saying, I'm sure that the bit of road that most requires to be illuminated is the point where it forks. see... Point you most that needs to be both illuminated is not where your feet are now, but where it's going to part between one fork and another fork. You want to understand. You want that to be illuminated. Uh, and I think he's right. There's certainly a fork in the road uh, between falling over the stumbling stone of God and standing on the rock, uh, which is the cornerstone of salvation, between these two ways of thinking, these two ways of understanding. I'll just conclude with a wonderful verse that I've always loved out of Revelation chapter 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds follow them. I love these words because it says that their deeds follow them. Their deeds do not precede them. 
your deeds do not go ahead of you and kick the door open to, to heaven for you to go in or decide whether you're good enough to, if they're measured, whether you're good enough to go in. Your deeds do not go ahead of you. No, none of us deserves to go in. None of us deserves to be there. But Jesus did. He has gone first ahead of you. He has opened the door for you to go through into God's presence and for your good works to follow. Amen. Okay, I'll stop there and um, throw it open for anyone who wants to run around with... Yes? Um, two things, really. Um, one at a time. I, okay, one, one, time? one at a time, yeah, if you can. <laughs> one question at a time. Yeah. It's not really a question. Okay. I came to this lecture because um, this topic, the stumbling block, is what I'm reading in René Girard. Mm-hmm. He wrote a whole chapter about it. And if, for those people who don't know René Girard, he started with literature, studying envy in Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and went on to study Nietzsche and became a philosopher. But his philosophy on the scapegoat and how people um, react to other people's actions has totally bearing on this. And you kind of intuited it yourself. The assumption is that if you do something good, you'll be rewarded. If you do something bad, you'll be punished. And this is in Job. This is ancient, this idea. That if you do something good, you'll be blessed. And if you do something bad, you'll be thrown out. And what God does, is a com- what Jesus does in particular, is the exact opposite pattern. Which is that what you do isn't important. God is the one who, who gives it. And so... We want to react with envy. We want to say, well, that person has that and they didn't deserve it. I have to kill them. And that's what the stumbling block is. It's a scandal. God's um, pattern of just giving because he wants to for no other reason than his own is a scandal to everyone. It's an offense. And I think that gives a clue as to how we should live our lives, too. We become the stumbling block for others when we're generous, when we're kind, when people insult us, when we reflect back a different reaction than people expect us to. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I mean, and it's... it's. Because um... the stumbling block word is the same word we get the word scandal from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's... it's um... I haven't gotten it at all. It's it, the, the way that the life of Christ himself is tremendously morally motivating. And that's what, what he's picking up well, on. Well, he became and, the yeah. follower of Christ just yeah. because Christ gave a story that was so completely different from any yeah. world religions over time and yeah. space. Yeah. I and can't follow him. Down in I, faith, I, I can't follow him in what he says, what it, as I understand it anyway, what, he, what it means ultimately. Uh, but, but I think he's right in that as if all there was to the death of Christ was the, the moral transformation of Transformation of his followers. I think that he's. I find it myself. Wait, it's, it's, I, I can't. It's, I can't go with him all, all the way. It's oppression yeah. to be told that you can't come into the club until you yeah. follow what everyone says that you're supposed to do that yeah. you, no one can conform to. Yeah. yeah, he's right that there is a huge moral motivation there. There's a freedom uh, to it, but yeah. it triggers people all the time. Yeah, I think it many 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 people. Which makes you a stumbling block like Christ. Yeah. If you reflect him. 
That's right. And, and because I think if, if, if it all works out, if morality is all accomplished in this life, uh, it makes life really orderly. That Job's friends, this is their problem. Life, yeah. they had life very well ordered. And they didn't want to be shaken loose from the orderliness of, the, of what they'd figured out. Well, Job, you must have sinned. How could you have not sinned? Look at what you've suffered. If you just repent, you'll be okay. Everything will get better. Well, total rubbish. Total rubbish. It's not, that's not where God is at. But there, that, that is a, a, a secure world that we build for ourselves. And that's what uh, much of what the, this image is, these two images are going against. It's not a, it's, it's a, uh, we, we think we can, if we perform it's very orderly, we'll know what we're gonna, we're gonna get. We know what will come to us as a result of our, of our efforts, of our righteousness, of our goodness, of our love, and our religiousness, whatever it is, uh, we'll get. And, and it's that orderliness also that makes it easy for us, uh, to get great security by laying blame on somebody. If we can blame someone for things being wrong, then okay, I understand it. I understand how things work. I understand why things happen that are awful. It was his fault. And it's a scapegoat. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And and so there's a great seduction, I think, of that that he's that he's pointing out. Um, yeah, Marty. Or did you have a second thing, or did you did you roll it into one? No, I, I got in there. Okay. Good. I didn't, I, I didn't want to make sure you had. Yeah. No, I just just from what you said, it just occurred to me: Is there a way? I mean, you made the point that that Christians can be a, a stumbling block and offense to non-Christians, but is there is there not a way that we can also be, you know, that the other side of the of the stone and attract that Jesus in treating people with grace and imaging and modeling Jesus's love and grace, not be also a way of attracting people to Christ. So not just an offense to everybody, but to... So somebody, I mean, it's so much the way why the early church grew. It's so much yep. why Rome, why the Roman polytheism, millennia of polytheism was overthrown by the gospel was the way the Christians treated pagans. It was Christians in the third century during the plagues and during economic collapse when Romans fled the city so they wouldn't die of the plague and Christians stayed and served those who persecuted them, mm-hmm. loved those who persecuted them. Yeah. So, so, yes. so there's a way, there's a, a, wonder, a wonderful way that, I mean, I, I'm so glad you said that because you mentioned the one side, but then the other side, well, it's, it's more like thieves. Jesus. He, that, he develops thieves. that, yeah. Oh, he does. It's yeah. a two thieves. So you, if, you, if, if someone's really frustrated with the system and sees the bullshit for what it is, um, they're going to be relieved and attracted to Christ. Yeah. But the people who buy into the system and buy in buy into the patterns, yeah, yeah. it's going to infuriate them because they work so hard for that. How come they get to have that and I don't? Yeah, yeah. That's right. And there's different places. I think it's true. You see it particularly with respect to forgiveness. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how many people, non-Christian people, have looked to the the Amish people who remember the horrendous thing. This guy gets into this school and shoots up all their kids. And, and killed, I don't know how many of the kids and then killed himself. The parents of some of the killed children have been killed went immediately to the wife of the guy who had done the kid and said, we know you're going to have a lot of real trouble. You can come and live with us and we'll help you get through this. And we, we forgive you. We forgive him even. Uh, and, and people think, what? Where does this come from? Where do they get that? 
and, and are challenged by it. They're not thinking, how stupid. They're challenged by it. They say, I don't have that within me to forgive that. I'd rather just grind my teeth and, and, and uh, uh, spit tax over that. But, but do they respect it? So I think he's right that it can be very subversive in, in all the best ways. Yeah. Other things we'd like to raise? Anything else we'd like to... Yes. You shared the example of Paul and it seemed like you know, he's totally against Jesus and, and then he was all for him, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, like, I was thinking about it's such a powerful transformation story, but mm-hmm. I think, like, the average Christian kind of, like, I feel like there's moments where, like, you still stumble, you know? So, like, like, moments when what? Moments where we continue to stumble, you know, I see. throughout our lives. And so it's just like a continual process of repentance. So I think that's like important to remember too, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and there's all sorts of things we need to repent for as we go along. But there's a there's a special way in which we need to know that if we trust in Christ, we are justified. Yeah. Uh, that the verdict is in already. Uh, the final verdict of our life is in already. Uh, even though we may fail, doubt God, kick against God sometimes after that, but but find our way back. Uh, yes, I did. I my dealing with the Christian life is woefully inadequate for 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 what it needs. Uh, but I just had to. Uh, Put that in a very brief way to say, this is what we are for, is to honor God by the way we live. That's not at all, just not not unimportant. Well, it's just like for me, it's easy to think sometimes that I don't measure up, you know, and I mm-hmm. think like that's something you need to fight against, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yep, and all the things you wish you could do that you haven't done, that you thought you could do but you didn't, and, and uh, there's all sorts of ways that. But all these are ways that we can be led to doubt the, the, the rock solid truth that the grace of God is what our trust is in. <laughs> uh, there's a zillion and one ways that we can be made to doubt that, uh, even though we have it totally wrapped up and understood and nailed down, but. Ten minutes later, it can, something can get you from the side, and 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 you uh, uh, you go, well, how could I have thought that if I think I'm a Christian? How could that idea have come into my head if I claim to be a Christian? What an absolute impossibility! Well, uh, Jesus knew all about that stuff, and uh, that's part of what He's forgiven us for and empowered us to work work against. Yeah. Any other things we want to make around? Going off of that, the other side of um, you know, not, maybe not thinking that you're good enough and having to return to that foundation stone mm-hmm. of God's grace, but also starting to think you're good enough. And maybe that's maybe I don't need that grace anymore. Yeah, because um, I'm doing pretty great on my own. It's good that you talked about like there's repentance from that too. Yeah, and there's space for that. The door and parties open. 
put yeah. Glad you mentioned that because that, it's also possible for uh, it would be to, 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 to stretch the parable for the prodigal son himself five years later to be acting like the older brother had been to, to some nutcase that comes that shows up at the house, you know. And, and so just because he'd done it right once and got it squared away doesn't mean that he won't get slide into that. Uh, and and because uh, it's because it, it's really orderly. You know, to, yeah. to, to, to judge and to blame and to, and to fix blame where, it, where the, the needs, someone needs to be blamed for this. And, and uh, it's easy to just think we, um, that that's fair game, that, that, that that's a fair thing to do when we're doing the truth, uh, even when we know much better from way on down the line. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. Yes, Lenny. It seems that one of the things that makes it so hard for us to believe it is that what motivates this is unconditional love. Mm-hmm. God's unconditional love yeah. for us. And we just, it's in fact, it's unfathomable <coughs> to us yeah. um, that we're loved so much that he, that he would forgive and yeah. forgive. And, and keep on, yeah. 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 Just, it's the depth of his love. That's right, and that's and it helps if we've experienced something of that, some human partial that we've never, no one has experienced from another human being the the, the kind of unconditional love as from God. If a parent can show that to kids, really disciplining them, really trying to shape them, but loving them. Yeah. And, and showing that they, they really, really matter and they really care about them. Yeah. That's such an important part. Yeah. And loving them when they screw up, yeah. too. Yeah. And that, that really lasts yeah. in people's yeah. minds. Yeah. Uh, I love the story of a... I didn't hear this, but I've, this guy wrote a book called Margins, which is an interesting book. A guy, he's a physician who... Uh, tries to build margins in life to make uh, financially and time-wise and so on to make room for crazy things to happen. And so they have they had one car, uh, second-hand car was their only car in there. One night their daughter asked to borrow it. She went off with her boyfriend in the car and totaled it and came back. And uh, what he did was to me... Uh, I've never forgotten it. Uh, he says, okay... No one was hurt. We need to have a banquet to celebrate that nobody was hurt. This car was ruined. Uh, you rode it two or three times. We're going to have a banquet. Ask all your friends. We'll get we'll get uh, our friends together, and we need a big party. And I thought, whoa, someone has listened to Jesus <laughs> and figure out a way this that this we can put. You know, come on. Why is why but why is that so unlikely somehow? I mean, why is this so unlikely? Uh, but, it, but it's uh, but, but you can imagine what was remembered. Yeah. You can imagine the memory of that. Uh, and the attractiveness of that. I mean, yeah. about the, the draw of that. Yeah. What, you know. yeah. 
makes someone do that. Yeah. I understood God's grace. Yeah, that's right. That's just, since I've driven many of you around, that's kind of the story behind my car. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I totaled it, but um, before I owned a car, I was borrowing a friend's and got into a, like, a little fender bender, and my father was furious. And he was so angry that I had even driven someone else's car, much less gotten in a fender bender in someone else's car, and had to pay for damages and deal with insurance. And my dad has quite a temper, so he's on the phone with me, and he's just like so angry. And he goes, all right, listen, I'm going to pay all the damages. We're going to take care of this. I'm glad you're safe, and I'm going to buy you a car. And like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every time I get in that car, I'm reminded, like, yeah, I messed up. And my father responded with grace and generosity. Yeah. It didn't make sense. Yeah. Like, I deserved a bit of the chastisement for sure. But, um, but yeah, just that generosity. Yeah. That's great. You'll remember that. I do. Yeah. Every time, every time. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yes. Good morning. I, I've heard you say, you've probably given this illustration in different talks, but I've heard you often say that you feel like um, the, way, the way a marble in a salad bowl will automatically go to the bottom, that that's sort of the way we go back to works righteousness that 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 trying to trying to um, um, earn our own salvation earn our own righteousness is that second nature like the like the marble going to the bottom of the cell bowl that's where it's going to go when they go around and around the it's going to end at the bottom of the cell bowl and when it's mixed in with the salad we break our teeth oh right yeah, yeah. <laughs> good point good point that's but, taking it another step away. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just made me think that 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 that, that very um, predisposition is is something that we need to repent of over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, try. So when we're just like, as you mentioned, you're disappointed with yourself, like you know, you're beating yourself up. That that's a time. That's the moment to repent of having thought I could have done it by myself. In other words, recognizing that that. Um, predisposition to, to works, you know. Well, of course I, you know, rather than, yeah, I messed up. What's new? That's that's why I need Jesus. And then, um, I know I said this often, but because it's so, been so important to me, is Francis Schaeffer in his book, True Spirituality, describes the sort of key center of true spirituality is is learning moment by moment to appropriate the finished work of Christ for me now in this moment. Mm. So in that moment when I'm saying, I screwed up, I messed up, or I said something I shouldn't have, or or whatever, I failed, is in that moment bringing it to the cross and saying, mm-hmm. Jesus, thank you, thank you. This mm-hmm. is why you died. And and then getting up with a clear conscience. And that's it's so amazing what Hebrew says about the blood of sheep and goats, which is what the Israelites had, it it could forgive them, it could bring them into the presence of God, but it, Hebrew says it couldn't give you a clear conscience. But Jesus' death can give us a clear conscience, so mm-hmm. we can get up with our after our or when we're aware of our failings, or when we're aware with regrets, with fears of glories, with even you know the sin of going back to trying to earn our own salvation. And say, forgive me, Jesus, thank you, you did. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. And then mm-hmm. getting up with 
with a clear conscience and pressing forward, yeah. pressing on. Yeah, to, to, to push the image a little mm-hmm. one more step, that the, mar- the marble and the salad bowl, balancing a marble on the edge of the <laughs> salad bowl is a trick. <laughs> and and uh, very hard to do. Some salad bowls it's impossible because they're sort of... Uh, but maybe that's... It's that we need the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that at all. To really be really connected with the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And it's not, because it isn't what comes naturally to us, which is to roll down back and forth and finally stop at the bottom. Uh, and we need to really, uh, have God's help to stay perched up on the edge of the salad bowl. Yes? I would add to that, it's not just a personal thing between us and God. We reflect this to each other. If we say you're not good enough to someone else, mm-hmm. we're reflecting the, the pattern that isn't Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, if we try to please people all the time, it comes naturally to want to please everybody and to, to tell them something they want to hear. Um, that's part of it. it. It's like a whole different pattern of being, and it's communal. <clears throat> the whole redemption process is communal because we reflect God, Christ to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shouldn't just be an independent personal thing. Yep. It should also be a communal thing. Yep. It certainly is, is a huge, hugely important um, because we can reinforce social. that for each other. We can be Christ for each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the Holy Spirit lives there. Yep, that's right. Any other things we want to raise? Richard, welcome. Happy, Happy New Year to you. Thank you. I'm <laughs> reminded of the proverb that says, He who gains food by fraud tastes sweet for a while, but he ends up with a mouthful of gravel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> it's a bunch of proverbs that I resisted using in this tonight, and, and uh, but it's a, it's a, uh, certainly a, a, a true one. Yes, yes, Sarah. Um, I'm sort of not quite sure how to form my question, but I've been reading and puzzling over Romans 9, mm-hmm. um, where this, uh, the, the stumbling stone um, comes at the end of it, and I was particularly interested in um, Paul's use of the metaphor of the potter and the clay here, and then, you know, kind of these extended um, examples of vessels destined for wrath and mm-hmm. vessels destined for mercy and um, yeah just struggling with the question of like well it seems to be the one that's destined for wrath where's where's the um, you know free will of that of Pharaoh kind of that Pharaoh question mm-hmm. um, and but it it strikes me that where Paul ends up with Christ is it <laughs> the stone that the builders rejected mm-hmm. somehow well I, I guess that's where my question is because um, if if what or if what the stone is or either the stumbling stone or the cornerstone is in how a person responds to to Jesus <coughs> to to God it seems to somehow preserve the integrity of both God's sovereignty and human's true mm-hmm. response. Mm-hmm. 
where I th- I'm struggling to see that, or I've been struggling to see that in in this chapter. In the so I'm just wondering too. if it, <laughs> am well, I heading in the right direction? You know, to well, didn't they you, use that? set the cornerstone and then like use that as like the plumb line for the rest of the building and like base all the proportions from that like the, the square of that one cornerstone and so in a way Christ is the pattern for the rest of the church and if people choose a different stone it's going to have a different dimension it's not going to be square at the corner if it's not square it's going to have a different angle so I, I think that's how, that little bit from ancient architecture might help. Yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't get you past the problem of, of God's sovereignty in this by his intention and human responsibility, response, uh, which um, I think is kept alive um, all the way through, but there in the first part of the chapter, where he says, "You know, how can God harden Pharaoh's heart, but then hold Pharaoh responsible for having a hard heart?" kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he, he does. I, I like to compare it to the Book of Job because you have this whole back and forth and back and forth. God, J- Job. I can't go too far in the Book of Job, but 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 because it'll take too long. But but but. Uh, uh, the whole question is, Job really uh, um, a servant of God or not? Uh, and that's the question between God and the devil. The devil says, no, he's not. The devil's the total cynic. He, he looks like he's uh, your servant, but he's not at all. You've just lined his pockets. You've given him a good deal. So I take away that stuff and he'll curse you. And Job, uh, everything gets taken away, and Job doesn't curse God, and Job worships God. Uh, the thing... To, to just go over a lot. The thing that Job will not let go is uh, his question, why? He demands why all the way along, through, all the way through the 30 months, months chapters, uh, right up to 38, when God steps in and, and starts asking him questions. Um, but that's what God does to Job. He doesn't... And, and what Job is raising is just this pro- the problem of how can... If God is sovereign, where have all this garbage happening in the world? Is this what he likes? Does he do this because he likes it? Does he do this because he's evil? What's what's going on? So it's very much the, that problem of evil that's at stake all the way through the book of Job. And, and what God gives Job is not an answer to this question. Uh, because I think, and I'm not alone, different commentators have said this, that... that uh, if God had answered Job's question, uh, he would have given him the thing he demanded, uh, which God had decided to not answer. Not because he was holding it behind his back and thought he'd make Job uh, suffer longer with not knowing, but because a human being is not capable. A human being does not have the epistemological equipment to, to answer that question. That's what I think is going on. It's, it's, a, it's an infinite God, and this, this, the, the, the Bible has God is sovereign, human beings are responsible. All over the place, page after page after page after page. You can't sacrifice one to the other without destroying the whole thing. Uh, so that these two pillars have to be true. Uh, 
but the, the, how do we work at the beginning? Job, I want to work, make this work out. I want to figure out how it is. Job, God could not have given Job the answer because actually, because Job wouldn't be able to understand it. It's, it's beyond any of us. Uh, but Job, Job, God didn't pretend to give Job an answer. He just started asking questions and more questions and 75 or so on questions, uh, which were getting Job to see himself differently and God differently. Uh, and he finally does. He said, I'll be quiet. And then finally he says, I've, been, I've, I've said things too wonderful for me. And he really repents. Uh, now, that's, it's not that God didn't answer Job. It's that God gave Job all he could possibly know toward an answer, which is that he is incapable of knowing the answer to this. It's way over his head. Uh, now, that is just what Paul does to that question in Romans 9. He says, uh, it says, who are you, Clay, to talk back to the potter? Who are you to be to, to demand a, uh, a question? And, and he, he just asks, and so he enters the with the questioner, the, the, the objector to, to the to the problem of the sovereignty and responsibility of reading the Book of Romans, uh, to saying, to, to realize you are dealing with the very same problem Job dealt with. With that it's I am not capable of putting these two things together, of holding God can. God has these two things together. The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of human beings. But we can't. We don't. And, and he's asking us to realize that, accept it, not to beat your head on one side or the other, or sacrifice one to the other, which Christians are so good at doing, uh, because it seems to make it easier. But, but um, So I think the fact that he leaves it as a question... Uh, rather than says, oh, it's all God's sovereignty. I mean, well, Luther was much worse than Calvin in, in what he said about, about, about the sovereignty. If I had, as long as we have the sovereignty of God, we don't need the responsibility of human beings, or something to that effect. Calvin never said that. He says, you hold the two together. Uh, and and uh, anyway, that's, that's uh, how I've always looked at that, that we want an answer, but it's far better for us if we back up and realize this is beyond my, not just my pay grade, but my basic equipment is not capable of grasping. This is not that God is being um, just uh, torturing me by not giving me the answer that he's holding on his back. Uh, anyway, that's it. Thank you. That's, uh, I, that's the other thing that, that's very helpful, and it just strikes me that, um, you know, the... And, and, and it seems like part of what Paul's getting at is, you know, while I might sort of get a bit indignant about, well, what, what about all these, you know, the poor, the poor sons who got the bad end yeah. of the deal, you know, like, it also is, uh, you should be so in awe of the mercy here. Like, what about these people who don't deserve the mercy that they get? Like, the Gentiles yeah. have been given this. And yeah. so that that helps to, again, kind of put two, two yeah. foci in place there. And I think that the, the, the whole thing is that we we are dealing with the Creator who is at a different dimension from anything we can imagine, really, in terms of who He is and what He's done to create us. We are the created, we are the creatures. Uh, there are, I keep using, epistemic Mm-hmm. complications in that uh, consequences to that difference between us uh, and we can't pretend that we can march in and demand uh, an answer to every question that we can imagine coming up uh, but but 
the, the, the answer that God does give to Job is that, hey, I'm the creator, and if you could answer these questions, which are only about the physical world, not all, all the metaphysical questions <coughs> you could have raised, it's just where did the snow come from? You know, Job yeah. doesn't know where the snow came from. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh, we do now, maybe. But, but, but there's a lot still that, 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 uh, uh, that we have no clue about. And, and so, but, but here, this is the essence of it. We are God is creator, we are creature. That difference between us demands that we acknowledge a huge epistemological gap. Uh, and, and we have to just live with two things that we can't resolve. What else is new? Uh, yeah. yeah. Just on that, I think it's been kind of eye-opening for me to see that Romans 9, the same chapter where Paul talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, is I think the language of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that chapter opens with Paul weeping over the Jews that he longs for them to know Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, then he goes into all of the Jew Gentile dynamics. And then the thrust of the rest of Romans is, I've got to get to Spain to keep sharing the gospel. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So just to see that, mm-hmm. that just even that emphasis on what God is doing with vessels of wrath, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy doesn't leave Paul sitting on the couch saying, yep. God's going to do what God's going to do, who cares? But right. it sends him out. Um, yeah. It sends them out in mercy, and it sends them out in zeal and love, mm-hmm. uh, which I think that's been helpful. So often, seen passages in Romans nine taught as just like God's sovereignty, not at all talking about a fixed determinism. Yeah, and kind of the application Paul has, like let's get out there, yeah. um, which is not expected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You certainly see that, and Christians who've understood that. Mm-hmm. You see Christians being incredible activists into the world. Who believe God is sovereign? Right. Um, right, people like I'm fascinated with Marilyn Robinson's interest in the Puritans. The Puritans were up to here with this Calvinistic theology, and they were incredibly active. They were into everything to try and make a better world. They screwed a lot of things up. They got some things wrong, but they certainly were not passive. Uh, they were they were rolled up their sleeves, and, and much of what's valuable in America is a result of of their efforts all the way back from the beginning. But, but uh, so it's a, it's a sad thing that it gets warped out of shape, I think. Yeah. Yes, Lenny? Just on this subject, something that really helped me was an illustration that Udo Middleman, yeah. a picture of what you're talking about, exactly what you're talking about, that he used to use, that he would describe all of reality as a circle. Mm-hmm and then put a line across the circle like this. And we live below that line. Mm-hmm. And you would say, what we always are doing is trying to close the circle below mm-hmm. the line. Mm-hmm. So we've got free will over here. We've got the absolute sovereign power and knowledge of God over here. Mm-hmm. If we try to close it, below the line, we've got a much smaller reality, and it doesn't really, it's not reality, mm-hmm. but it's because we don't get all that part of reality that's above that line, mm-hmm. we shouldn't, we have to live with these, mm-hmm. it's a good, this yeah, open circle. Good illustration. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, just, it just really helped me yeah. to have a picture like that, and yeah. yeah. explain it, it's exactly what you're saying, yeah. but it's, it's a very helpful picture to me. That's right. But that's, that's one that 
in God has a lot of angles attached to it. So that's, that's something I think we all, you know, different people experience that in different ways <clears throat> at different uh, times of our lives that uh, can make that extremely painful for us. Uh, and and uh, we, 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 a quick answer to that question is not, not advised. <laughs> or a generalized answer that's meant to cover everybody is not advised. Yes. Anything else we want to Well, why don't we call it a night then? And uh, I think so.